You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We've been walking through a, a, a series through Ephesians, and we're in a kind of a new section, last week we kind of looked at a, a global picture of verses 11 down through verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at verse 11 and 12 this morning, and uh, just so it's just in our minds and refreshed, let me just read Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> excuse me, starting verse 11. Uh, Paul writes this, Therefore, remember that you were formerly Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision in the flesh by human hands. And you were at, this, at that time, apart from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were formerly far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who has made both groups one and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. Uh, We were talking about this last week, but it's interesting that when Paul is getting into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, he's talking about the overwhelming contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, Again, the the bigger context is he's talking about the power of God. And uh, in chapter 1, verse 19, he's been walking through what is the power of God. And he says the power of God is indescribable. The power of God is over the top. The power of God, you you can't put language to the idea of the power of God. So Paul says, let me give you a couple illustrations of how the power of God is demonstrated. And the first illustration we looked at goes from verse 20 down to verse 23 of chapter 1, which is the life of Jesus. And Paul says, isn't that phenomenal that here is Jesus who is dead, and God reaches the Father, reaches his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and brings Jesus not just from physical death into physical life, because that would have been amazing, but then he took him from physically living and brought him and seated him in the heavenly places and put all things underneath his feet and gave him a name that is far above all other names. And Paul says that is a demonstration of the power of God. Uh, In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he says, oh, let me give you another illustration. You. And he says, do you recognize that your life is a demonstration of the power of God? That here you are dead, not physically, but spiritually. And what did did God do? He reached into your spiritual deadness and yanked you from spiritual death and brought you into spiritual life. And then what did he do? He then seated you in Christ in the heavenly places. And that is a demonstration of the power of God, which is pretty phenomenal if you think about it. Now he gets into the third illustration, which is the church or the body of Christ. And he's talking about this fact that up until this point, up until the time of Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles are completely separate. They're two distinct groups. And now the early church has a problem because here's all these Gentiles. And you know who the Gentiles are, right? Us. (laughs) The church has a problem because here, here they are, this Jewish sect, and all these Gentiles are being saved, and the Holy Spirit is starting to fill them up. So the question then becomes, which we talked about last week, is what place do the Gentiles have in the family of God? In other words, is God saying, well, all right, I'll let the Gentiles in, but hey, we'll, we'll put you in the back corner, you know, in heaven and give you a little outhouse and, you know, just, just be thankful you made it, you know? I mean, is that what God is doing with the Gentiles? 
And it's interesting, Paul, in this context of the demonstration of the power of God, is talking about what God did in the life of the Jews and the Gentiles, as he says in verse 14, to bring them together. Now, I started talking about this last week, but it's interesting that when you look at the mindset of the Jew, of what the Gentile was, these groups did not like each other. And uh, we'll get into this in just one second, but it's interesting that here, here's God's chosen people, and they've been set apart, they've been made holy, and that kind of went to their head, and they just says, oh, we are God's chosen people, which they are. But the reason they were God's chosen people was so that they could bring in the nations. And instead of that, they had this superiority mindset where it's like, ugh, those Gentiles, Psst. So let me give you this quote. I mentioned it last week, and here's the full quote. Uh, one of the commentators, William Barclay, explains the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles and how the Jews saw the Gentiles. This cracks me up. <clears throat> this is what he writes. The Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. They said that the Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. Praise the Lord. <laughs> And that God loved only Israel of all the nations that he made. It was not even lawful to give help to a Gentile woman in childbirth, for that would be to bring another Gentile into the world. The barrier between Jews and Gentiles was absolute. If a Jew married a Gentile, the funeral of that Jew was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was equivalent of death. Even going into the house of a Gentile made a Jew unclean. Now that's intense. I mean, can you imagine that you're growing up in this mindset of, hey, why did God create the Gentiles? Well, something has to fuel hell. So obviously God created the Gentiles to fuel hell. That's not how you make a friend, by the way. <laughs> you know? like, that, doesn't, that doesn't bode well. Hey, you know what God made you for? He has a special purpose in your life. Oh, really? What is it? You are to be the fuel for the fires of hell. You know, <laughs> that's not nice. So you got to think this, though, or think this thing through. There is an obvious question in the mind of a Gentile that Paul is addressing. Well, if, if that's how the mind of the Jews were to, to the Gentiles, and, and, and here I am, a Gentile, and God has brought salvation in my life, what position do I have in the family of God? Now, it's interesting in the passage that I read, verses 11 and 12, Paul is giving a contrast. Now, he does this several times in the book of Ephesians where he talks about who you once were and then he contrasts that with who you now are. But, but listen again to verse 11 and 12 of what Paul says is the Gentiles. He says, remember you were formerly Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. So in other words, the Jews, the circumcised, are calling the uncircumcised uncircumcised, right? They're Gentiles. And they were at that time, so think about this, you were at that time, apart from Jesus, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Paul says, hey, don't forget, you were, you were cut off, you were pushed out, that there was this barrier separating the Jews and the Gentiles. It's interesting that Paul uses, and I think it's a play on words, I really do, I think this is actually hilarious, and I don't mean this in any crude sense, and I apologize that we have to talk about circumcision this morning, and if you don't know what circumcision is, ask Brad. He'll explain it to you. But, uh, but or Eric, you know, <laughs> I don't want to get into it. 
But it's interesting that when you talk about this idea of circumcision, in the mind of, of what Paul's talking about, that is a distinctive for the Jew. Right? That, that's, that should make sense to us. That, and of course, it goes back to the whole Genesis passage. Uh, God shows up to Abraham and says, Abraham, I have this special covenant with you. And a sign of the covenant is going to be circumcision. And I, I, I don't know what that conversation must have been like, but poor Abraham, who here he is at, you know, in his later years, God's saying, all right, here's what I want you to do. And I want you to go take a flint knife. And I don't know if you know what a flint knife is, but, you know, in Israel, there's all these flint stones, right? There's these rocks. And so, you, you know, you throw them against another rock and it makes these really sharp angles. And so it kind of makes this knife thing. And God says, I want you to take that and I want you to do this. And, and then to all the, to, you know, to Ishmael and to all the other males in your, in your household. And that is going to be an external physical sign of an internal reality. Uh, in, in, the, in the Christian church today, right, we have baptism. What is baptism? Going in the water doesn't save you. So then why do we go in the water? Oh, it is an external sign of an internal reality. God has done something on the inside, so we go through the external to declare to the world and to the heavenlies of the internal change that's taken place within us, that there's this dramatic shift. Same thing's taking place in Abraham. God says, I have chosen you. You are my covenant people. And therefore, you need a sign of that covenant. Well, what's the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. And again, there's nothing wrong with circumcision. Circumcision was great. And it was supposed to be the distinguishing mark of the covenant. In fact, as you walk through the Old Testament, it's interesting. Uncircumcision becomes a sign of stubbornness and unbelief. And if you want some passages... uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot these out really quick and you can go back and listen, or uh, read them. But Leviticus 26, 41, Deuteronomy 10, 16, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Jeremiah 6, verse 10, Jeremiah 9, verse 25. And if you didn't have enough time to write those down, sorry. But that, again, that idea of uncircumcision was a sign of, hey, you have disbelief. Hey, you're not a part of the covenant. Uh, in fact, the whole idea of uncircumcised was, was a sign of rebellion and disobedience. And therefore, anybody who was uncircumcised was view, viewed with contempt. Why? Because you were not a part of the club. You weren't a part of the family of God. And there's a whole bunch of passages there too if you want to look through those. So now, think about this. Jesus comes. He dies upon the cross. He rises again. ascends into heaven. Here's the early church. And of course, the early church is starting to go out and starting to proclaim and, and fulfill the Great Commission. And, and I love this story in Acts chapter 10. Let me, let me just read you a little section of this. Here's Peter, and of course, he's up on the rooftop, and he has this incredible dream. And in the dream, there's all these unclean animals. And God says, eat. And Peter says, I'm not going to eat that stuff. There's bacon. I don't eat bacon. And God says, no, you really want to eat bacon. I, this wasn't word for word of the passage, but, you know, it's the concept. You know, right? These all these unclean animals. And basically what, what God is speaking to, to Peter is, Peter, look, there's these unclean things out there called the Gentiles, and I'm bringing them in. And it's interesting, the moment the vision ends, here is these guys sent from Cornelius up in uh, Caesarea, and it says, hey, could, we've been hearing all this stuff. Could you come and speak to us? And Peter's like, I don't go to the Gentiles. But he goes with him because the Spirit of God's moving upon him. He just had this weird vision, and what do I do with all this? And Peter goes up to Cornelius' house and begins to speak. (laughs) This cracks me up. Uh, In Acts 10, verses 44 and 45. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. 
and those of the circumcision, so the group of the Jews, who believed were astonished. And that word astonished has this idea of like their mouths were agape. I mean, they were just, what? You're telling me that the Holy Spirit, God himself, came upon those people? Why? They're uncircumcised. Hey, they're Gentiles. So, <laughs> this thing is hilarious. So those of the circumcised who, were, who believed were astonished. And, and many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So the early church, here's Peter and these guys with him who are flabbergasted. Why? Because, well, I, I, I thought this was just for the Jews. Now, this thing began to increase. Now we know that Paul went off to the Gentiles and began to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And God was doing all these things incredible through the, the ministry of Paul. But now there became this issue. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 14, they start making their way back to Antioch, which was the headquarters of the early church at the time. And in chapter 15, there's now a serious problem going on in the early church. And Acts 15 verses 1 and 2 says that certain men came down from Judea. Oh, so here are these Jews who are coming from Jerusalem, where this whole thing began. And they taught the brethren, listen to what they were being taught. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So, so what was being preached? Oh, yeah, unless you become a Jew and become circumcised, hey, there is no salvation for you. So there became a dispute. What, are we, what on earth are we going to do with this? In other words, in order to be a Christian, do you have to first become a Jew? And you got to realize up until that point, that, that was the context. You were a Jew. I mean, the majority of people who were being saved were Jews. But now you start having these Gentiles who are being saved, who are being filled with the Holy Spirit. What do we do with them? So again, there was this teaching going on that you had to become a Jew. So listen to what it says. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. I love how Luke writes that. In other words, they were upset. <laughs> so here's Paul and Barnabas, and it was not a small dissension or dispute. In other words, this was, this thing blew up. Why? Because Paul and Barnabas recognized what God was doing. They've been preaching to the Gentiles. They've been seeing what God has been doing. Uh, so, so they began to, you know, uh, I'll finish the verse. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension dispute with him, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about the question. So here they are in Antioch, and they just says, you know what? Uh, we're not sure what to do with this. So here's this teaching. You had to be a Jew. Paul and Barnabas are getting angry at everybody and throwing things around. I, don't, I can't prove that, but I'm presuming <laughs> they were angry. Why? Because, hey, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot do this. Hey, that's not right. And so the, the end conclusion is, all right, why don't you go up to Jerusalem where all the elders were still at, so all the original apostles are still hanging out, and why don't you guys figure this thing out? So Paul and Barnabas and a group of people go up to Jerusalem. They have this meeting. And, of course, Peter stands up and says, yeah, I was, I was down at Cornelius' house, and this is what happened. And, and Paul and Barnabas begin to talk about their missionary journeys and, and what God's been doing through the missionary journeys. Do you know what the conclusion was in the early church? strangely, you don't have to become a Jew. That you could, think how crazy this is. You could be a Gentile and get in on Jesus. That somehow what God was doing through the life of Jesus wasn't merely for this special group called the Jews. He was doing something for the world. 
And of course, they wrote the great letter uh, in verses uh, 23 through 29, talking about the fact that, hey, you don't have to be circumcised, but we do suggest these three things, right? Uh, abstain from uh, offering things to idols, or, you know, abstain from idolatry, uh, from blood and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So, hey, you do, you do really well to keep yourselves from those things. In other words, don't get caught up in the paganism of the world. So if you're coming to Jesus, you can't keep living like the world and be caught up in the idolatry, the sexual immorality stuff, and then, you know, the whole blood stuff because the life was in the blood, according to the Jew. In other words, the Gentiles got to be Gentile Christians. How crazy is this? So Paul, in our passage in Ephesians then, is starting to address this issue. He's saying, hey, look, at one point you were, now, I'm going to, use my play on words, and I don't, I don't want you to go crazy with it, but I do think Paul's kind of hinting at this idea. Here are the circumcised ones, right? And to be crude in one sense, they're cut off. They're the cut off ones who are cutting off everybody else. Isn't that ironic? So here are the ones who've been chosen, the circumcised, whose external sign is cutting off, and what are they doing? They are cutting off everybody from getting in to the reality of Jesus. So Paul is addressing the cut, the non-cut-off ones to say, hey, look, I know you have been cut off by the cut-off ones, but you've actually been brought near. I think there's this fun play on words. Do whatever you want with it. Uh, with that being said, let me give you three ideas that comes out of this idea of, therefore, you are former, formerly Gentiles in the flesh, called the, uncir- un- called the uncircumcised by those who called circumcised. One is the difference of the physical versus the spiritual. Again, it's interesting that what God was doing in the life of the Israelites was physical. There wasn't anything wrong with the physical. There's still nothing wrong with the physical. But it wasn't merely for the physical. It was for the spiritual reality inside. In other words, again, the the external picture of the covenant was to show the internal reality of what God was wanting to do spiritually in the life of the Israelite. But again, his, his interest was not in the physical circumcision as much as it was in the spiritual circumcision. In fact, let me just give you a few verses. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16, God, speaking through Moses, is saying, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to love him? to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. Get this. And he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. He says, look, God has chosen you. Hey, you're the ones who've been cut off and separated out. You've been chosen for God's special people. But what does Moses go after? It isn't the fleshly stuff. It's the heart stuff. He says, so therefore, circumcise your heart. Hey, remove that fleshly part of your heart. Uh, a, few, a few chapters later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, <clears throat> again, Moses writes, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul that you might live. 
Isn't it interesting that here, here's this, you know, the teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment? And of course, Jesus goes back into Deuteronomy and quotes the Shema. And he says, oh, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. You realize, according to Deuteronomy, though, the only way you can do that, the only way you can love the Lord your God is that your heart has to be circumcised. And for clarity's sake, that's not a male thing. That's a human thing. That all of us have this fleshly part of our hearts that must be circumcised and the flesh must be cut off so that you can love the Lord your God. That, that I'm not wrapped up in myself. I'm not wrapped up in the selfishness. I'm not wrapped up in the sin. I'm not wrapped up in the me, 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 me kind of stuff. That has been cut off so that I can love the Lord my God. Well, how's that going to take place? A circumcision of the heart, which is what God is after. Uh, Jeremiah 4.4. 4. Uh, Jeremiah writes, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. Again, there was nothing wrong with the physical. God gave the physical. And that was an outward sign of an inward reality. But God was interested in the inward reality. And what did the Jews do with that? It's like they forsook the inward and they stood only upon the outward. Isn't that interesting how often we do that? That we start looking at all the physical stuff that we're doing and we presume we have right relationship with God because of physical. Well, I attend church. I never miss a Sunday. Good for you. But how's that? If you don't have the life within you, what good is, the, what good is church? Well, I tithe every Sunday. Please do. <laughs> we need your money. God doesn't need your money, but we do. You know, so please keep giving your money. Right? Well, it's an ex external thing. Well, I, I memorized my Bible. Good for you. But Satan knows the Bible. And should you memorize the Bible? Yes. Should you go to church? Yes. Should you tithe? Yes. But you cannot rely upon the external without having the internal. You've got to have the change of the heart. And isn't it interesting that we often, like the Jews, rest upon the external rather than let God deal with our internal stuff? What's God interested at? Interested in the heart. Uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and it's interesting. Here are these Pharisees. You realize the Pharisees, from an external perspective, did everything correct. They wore the right clothing. They had the big phylacteries. They had the, they had the Torah memorized. They taught the law. They obeyed it the best they could. And in fact, they were so legalistic that when it said tie the tenth, you know what they would do? Anytime they were going to make tea and wanted to have mint tea, they would take a mint leaf and they would put it down and they would cut that mint leaf into ten equal portions. And they would take one of those portions and set it aside so they can take it down to the, the temple. Why? Because God said tie the tenth on everything. So I'm making tea. I got to tie the tenth of my tea leaf. And I mean, these guys had it figured out. I mean, these guys were doing it perfect, perfectly. But it was external. And isn't it interesting? Jesus shows up and says, you guys, yeah, you have this, but your insides are dead. In fact, let me give you the verse. This is awesome. Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. Jesus says, woe to you. And you know what a woe is, right? It's that when you hear it, you go, whoa. So Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of extortion and, and self-indulgence. 
you blind Pharisee, clean inside first the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of the cup may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Isn't that awesome? Jesus says, you know what you are? You are a whitewashed tomb. Of course, Jesus is referring to their custom that down around Jerusalem, you had all these tombs of the prophets. They're still there today. And so what they would do is, you know, hey, during the big festivals, everyone would go down to Jerusalem for the festival. And it was kind of like a tourist attraction. Hey, let's go visit the tomb of so-and-so. And so the Pharisees, in order to make it look nice, would whitewash the outside of the tomb. Why? Well, it's a tomb. You don't want to like, it's gross, right? So if you're going to come down and visit, at least we'll make the outside nice. Jesus, do you know what you are? You're that. You've made this outside appearance thing look great, but inside you are full of deadness. Why? Because our focus is on the physical, not the spiritual. It's not that the physical doesn't matter. The physical matters. Had God made physical, he called this thing good. So it's not a get rid of the physical. The physical is good. But you cannot rely upon the physical and ignore the spiritual. What is God ultimately after? The spiritual. And I don't want you want to do this in your own heart, but see, I, I've been convicted that it's like, well, what areas of my life am I propping myself up in the physical but not actually having the life in the spiritual? I'm going through the motions because that's the right thing to do here. And hey, it doesn't take very long of growing up in the church to know when to stand up and when to sit down and, and what to say and what not to say. And, you know, you walk into church and you put on that smile. Hey, how are you? Great. Wonderful. How's your week? Great. Wonderful. Thanks for asking. How are you? Oh, good. Wonderful. Right? And we, and we go through the motions, but inside we're just dead. What's God after? Life. Spiritually. And I... I'm convicted at one level that here are these Jews who are so wrapped up in the physical that they've lost the spiritual. But isn't it interesting that what Paul is telling the Gentiles is, here you are, you have been cut off because you don't have the physical. But oh, you have been brought near because you have a spiritual. And what's, what's the, what's the, again, what's the big deal God's doing? He's going after the spiritual. Another idea with this whole thing is this barriers versus blessings. Again, it's interesting to me that what should have been a blessing for the world became a barrier to the world. Here are these Jews who were given this covenant, who were given this blessing. Of course, it goes back to Genesis chapter 12, verse, verses 1 through 3, that God is choosing Abraham. And he says, God, uh, Abraham, I'm choosing you out of your world and out of your people and out, and out of your culture so that I can make you a blessing to the world. And again, the whole idea of what God was doing with Abraham is he's choosing someone out of the world so that he can do something in this family group, this people, so that when the world looks upon that people group, the world says, oh, I need in on that. I need your God. And of course, we do see that happening, right? You see Ruth, you see Rahab, you see pictures of that but ultimately what took place is that Jews just said oh I'm God's special people and they put barriers up to the point where in Jesus' day when Paul's writing this the Jews again the mentality of the Jew to the Gentile was oh you're fuel for the fires of hell 
So rather than being a blessing to the world, which is what the Jews were called to be, to bring the world in on Jesus, they created barriers. Well, what was God's big desire? To win the world. And for the sake of time, I won't read all these to you, but when you look at Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 23 to 27, his whole thing is, hey, I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to demonstrate my holiness through you. So that all the world, I didn't choose you because you were special, Paul, or God says very explicitly. He says, hey, you rebelled against me. You shook your fist in my face. Hey, you lived in adultery, idolatry, and yet I'm still choosing you. Why? To showcase my great love and my holiness for my sake, says the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 11.10 says, in that day there will be a root of Jesse. Well, who is that? It's Jesus. Who will... St- who shall stand as a banner to the people. For Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. That, that here's this rooted Jesse, and hey, if, if things are working properly, the whole world is going to say, I need that root. Uh, Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 7. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Again, over and over, there's this, there's this undercurrent through the Old Testament that, hey, God says, look, I chose you so that you would be a blessing to the world. That when the world sees you, they would want in on it. But what did you do? You created barriers. So rather than being a blessing, you created barriers. Isn't that a sad thought that we sometimes do that too? That here we are. We are Christians. We are God's chosen people. We've been grafted in. Praise the Lord. We've been brought in. So what are we called to be? We are called to be a blessing to the world. That when when the world sees what God is doing in our lives, they should say, I need in on that. What is it that you have? And yet, isn't it strange how we create these barriers? Whether you call them denominations, whether you call it racism, whether you call it, we have all these barriers that we put up in the church because we want to feel safe or we want to feel calm or we want to feel comfortable or we want to feel... So rather than being a blessing to the world, we have done the very same thing. But what, is, what was God's desire? God's desire was not to have barriers, but to allow the Jews to be a blessing. There wasn't, there wasn't supposed to be a division between the Jew and the Gentile, which is actually in our passage. And as, as you get into the passage, especially verse 14, isn't it amazing that God's big desire, this is so this is so profound to me, that God's desire wasn't to bring the Gentiles in and have a Gentile church separate from the Jewish church. So you realize when we get to heaven, there's not going to be Jewish and Gentile. What is there going to be? Christian. That's neat to me. That is a demonstration of the power of God. Now, we don't live in their culture, so maybe we can put it in our culture. We would say, wouldn't it be fascinating if there wasn't Presbyterian Christians and Baptist Christians and Methodist Christians and Episcopalian Christians and Charismatic Christians, and, and, it, and we're all not going to have our own little separate corner in heaven. We're going to be Christians. We're one body. Well, that would take a miracle. I know. But that's, that's Paul's point. So maybe for our personal lives, are there any areas of your life where you are creating barriers rather than being a blessing to your world? Because God's desire for you is that you would be a blessing to the world. 
maybe one quick third point here, is this idea, which ties into this other one, is we're not talking uniformity, but we are talking unity. See, uniformity is everyone has to be exactly the same. Unity is there is a coming together around a central focus. Wouldn't it be neat if, I mean, could you believe it? The Baptists are going to make it to heaven. I could hardly believe it. It's harder for me to believe that the Presbyterians are going to make it too. Can you believe that the Methodists may even squeak in? Woo, those charismatics. You never know about those charismatics, but I think a few of them might slip in too. Isn't it interesting that you, you, it's not like we all like the same kind of pizza. We don't all have to have the same haircut. Praise the Lord. And yet there's a unity. The best picture of this I've ever thought of is, is a symphony. You go to a symphony and there's all these different instruments being played. And yet there's one song. And you might be the tuba and you might be the bassoon and you might be the you know, trumpet or the flute or the strings or the... But yet there's one song centered around one music piece. Wouldn't it be neat if we're not talking uniformity as much as we're talking unity? And you can like whatever kind of pizza you want to have and you can, and I don't know what you want to do with certain things that are kind of peripheral in Scripture, but, but we all have one focus. We all have one North Star. It's Jesus Christ. We have one f- focus in our hearts. It's Jesus. And wouldn't it be amazing if in the unity of having Jesus as our focus, it broke down every barrier and it brought us this blessing thing in the midst of the unity. See, wouldn't it be amazing, which is one of the things I love about what we've been doing at Ellerslie is we have every conservative evangelical denomination usually in every semester. And yet that never bothers people. And we don't say, okay, Baptists, you're going to sit over here and Lutherans over there and Presbyterians back here and Charismatics, well, maybe over there. And then, you know, I mean, we, we don't, we're one body. We worship one Lord together. We're focused on the Word of God together. And there's a beautiful unifying that happens when Jesus becomes the focus. Isn't it interesting if you go after unity, you tend to miss Jesus? But if you go after Jesus, you will get unity? I found that to be true. And it's interesting in our day and age today, with all the stuff that's going on in culture, there's all this talk of racism and unity and breaking all that down. You realize the moment you start focusing on that, it will never bring solution. Because it only heightens it. I was talking to a friend the other day and she was mentioning that her kids, <laughs> with all this racism talk lately, the kids were like, you know what? I've never actually noticed someone's skin color until recently when it's been pointed out so much. And now I'm starting to notice it. I feel like all this talk of racism has started, me, has started making me racist. Well, yeah, because you're focused. See, wouldn't it be neat if we could just focus on Jesus? I'm not saying ignore the peripherals, but there's something about when you focus on Jesus and all of us come in alignment to that reality, it brings about unity. And isn't it amazing that if in Paul's day you could take two groups who utterly hated each other, one group that looked at the other and says, you know what God designed you for? Hell. Fuel for hell. And if he could bring those two groups together and make them one body, 
where there's not Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian, there's just Christian? Wouldn't it be neat if he could do that today? Wouldn't it be neat if he could remove every barrier and make the church an actual blessing to the world rather than a curse world to the, to, to the culture? See, wouldn't it be amazing if this wasn't so much about the physical and about going through the physical stuff, what if there actually was a spiritual life within us? I, and again, I love what Paul said in our passage here. Remember, you were Gentiles. You were cut off from the ones who were cut off. But yet, he says in verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once formerly afar off, you who were cut off, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus. He is our peace. He made both groups one. Wouldn't it be amazing if he could do that today? I think he can. And wouldn't it be amazing in the church today with all the division that we have <clears throat> if he brought all these groups together and we became one body? What a declaration to the, what a declaration to the world. We're not talking uniformity. We are talking unity, though. Pray with me. Jesus, Lord, it's mind-boggling to me that you allowed the uncircumcised to be brought in to be the family of God. And there no longer is circumcision or uncircumcision. There's just Christian. And you've made both groups one. Uh, Lord, is, if there's anything that I've been using in my own life that I've been justifying in the physical, ignoring the spiritual, Lord, would you point that out? Lord, anything in my life where there's, I'm having this external appearance of doing good and I'm resting upon talent or ability or going to church or whatever, whatever that may be, but I don't have the actual life, Lord, I don't want to be a whitewashed tomb that looks great on the outside but have dead man's bones on the inside. Lord, I want life which you have made possible through Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I want my life to be a blessing without barriers. Lord, I, I, I want to remove every or any issue in my life that doesn't bring about unity. But unity, Jesus, is not my goal. This isn't overlook sin. This isn't, you know, push something aside for the sake of unity. I, we understand that, Jesus, but what would it look like if the body of Christ became the body of Christ? You have one bride. Lord, could you call your church up afresh? Could you purify your bride? Could, could you remove the dividing walls? Could, could you make us, a, your body, a blessing Lord, thank you for bringing us from far away into the family, not as a stepkid, not as some adopted thing kind of pushed to the side, but as an actual heir of the kingdom. We are the bride of Christ. And Lord, we just celebrate the fact that those of us who are Gentiles get to be a part of the family, not as second class citizens. Lord, you are good. Your mercies endure forever.
We love you. Give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.